0: Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick McGee. I love having proper conversations with intelligent people, especially over a beer, and that's exactly what this podcast is. We'll cover a new topic each week, so join us with a beer and let's cheers to science. Our guest this week, Emily Hogg, is an associate professor at the Department for the Study of Culture at the University of Southern Denmark. Hope you enjoy.
1: So I'm from the UK, I'm from England, from the south east of England. which is where I grew up and then I studied English at Nottingham University and then I did a PhD and well first of all I did a, a master's degree that was about um, human rights and then um, which was a social sciences master's and then I started to think that I missed studying literature but I wanted to kind of bring the literature stuff that I was interested in together with issues of more social, political... Relevance, And so that's why um, I decided to do a PhD that was about um, the way that literary texts reflect on or interact with issues connected with human rights. So the way that literature deals with human rights issues, with ideas around um, human rights abuses and um, the underlying ideas in human rights discourse. So I did that. Then... Um, I just saw an advert for a job here in Denmark that was um, in a project called Uses of Literature, which is about how um, we can bring literature more into dialogue with the social world. And um, often, literature people have often said that using literature is a bit reductive, but we want to try and find ways that we can um, think about literature in a better way, broader way.
0: Thank thank you. Cool. Thanks a lot. Cheers, Emily. Cheers.
1: Cheers. Thank you.
0: Because this is so so foreign to me, and and what I'm used to, after six years of biology, I'm just I'm, I'm fascinated by the, by the methods that people would use to to study literature, you know. Uh.
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to um, prove how literature affects people, partly because. Um, Different readers can respond to things in different ways, partly because um, often in literature studies we've been a bit resistant to um, more quantitative methods, so we don't tend to like doing big studies about what did you actually think of this book? We tend to just kind of assume. Yeah. <laughs> in my own um, research, what I try to do is look at the works that I'm reading, try and um, interpret how they work as pieces of art and then try to make arguments that seem logical or consistent about how the aspects of the, liter- the literature, how aspects of the way the text are written might be likely to affect readers. So for example, if um, one of the novels that I've written about recently has this kind of circular structure where it ends um, in the same place that it begins and so then I so it ends with um, a scene that's very similar to the scene that starts the novel in the first place and so then I try to say well what effect does that have what is that likely to do to a reader um, who reads it and how could we use that that circular structure to think about what effect it might have to somebody who's reading it.
0: What what novel are we talking about here? So
1: this is a novel called uh, Paradise by A.L. Kennedy Mm -hmm. and it's about um, an alcoholic narrator and what I was arguing when I wrote about that novel was that there are lots of very formulaic stories about being an alcoholic and what that is like. Lots of very um, established stories, um, cultural narratives that we tell about female alcoholism. And one of those is that it's a kind of endless downward um, spiral that you're going to end up... And the narrator in the novel talks about this. She talks about the fact that um, everyone expects that one day she's going to end up um, lonely and then dying alone in her flat and no one's going to find the body for days. And so there's a kind of culturally established story about what it's like to be a female alcoholic. and
0: Like, like uh, assumptions, prejudices. Yeah, uh-huh.
1: like stereotypes, yeah. yeah. And then in the novel, it's not as if it's a, a happy story. It isn't. But the fact that it ends in the same place that it begins that it has this circular structure Uh what I suggest about that is that it's a kind of um it's a way of resisting that cultural stereotype that things only end in one way because it ends back at the beginning and it kind of sends her around again in this this spiral and that could be a bad thing because it's like she never gets out of the place she's stuck in but it's also possibly um, a more positive story because it's about the way that um the ending that we often presuppose for female alcoholics, this kind of desperate, lonely ending, might not be the only ending of the story. It might be possible to tell the story of female alcoholism in a different type of way. Yeah,
0: but where does that prejudice come from?
1: I think from a number of different places. I think that culture has a big part to play in spreading those kinds of stories in the first place. So... Um, TV, films there are lots of cliches that we see that get repeated um, and novels too Um, part of what I argue in that essay is that um, there's a very established novel um, established story about alcoholism that comes in part from um, recovery movements and the types of stories that they tell about um, alcoholism which aren't wrong but just that they've taken on a, a kind of overwhelming cultural power that they just get repeated again and again Um, and there are also lots of established stories um, especially in a a British context that come from the temperance movement and this is a very well established historical um, issue that temperance movements kind of set up a very formulaic narrative about what it was to be an alcoholic and even though that was obviously a long time ago a lot of um, ideas about alcoholism persist
0: through time. So, for, for a podcast called Science and Beers, yeah. you know, th- this is particularly yeah. interesting. <laughs>
1: you
0: know, so, so the, the, well, the podcast was named Science and Beers because that beers part, first of all, we do, we do drink beers and we talk science, <laughs> but, but also the beers part implies for me a kind of relaxness yeah. to it. You know, so it's accessible. Oh, you're talking, talking about it over a pint. Yeah. It must be, you know, uh, easy to get you know yeah i hope it is yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're looking at female characters in literature specifically and like is there a difference in the literature between female characters and male characters and the the kind of standard narrative there if there is one
1: yeah that's something that the um, the narrator Hannah in this novel paradise Talks about that um, that there's often seen to be something slightly more pathetic about female drinkers, heavy drinkers than male, partly because um, she suggests there's something that links um, that men drinking is seen as sort of natural and masculine, whereas women drinking too much seems to um, seems to conflict with ideas of femininity as kind of controlled and unquote um, pure and nice and appealing um, but I think that one of the interesting things about alcohol which connects with what you're saying about science and beers is that um, it has so many uses in our societies and it is um, it has so many different meanings because of that so we it's a normal part of daily life for many many people that it's uh, you know it's a way of relaxing after work it's a um, um it's something you do to celebrate it's something you do um for fun um and it's also a way of trying to get away from the every day it's a kind of transcendence almost because it makes you feel differently than you do normally um and then of course there are all of these aspects of danger and risk that are associated with drinking when we read articles in the paper about drinking, it's often about the health risk, we're putting ourselves at risk, socially, because we're all drinking too much. So there are all mm-hmm. of these different um, aspects of alcohol, but because it's so ordinary, because it's around us so much, um, often we don't look at those or think about
0: those. Is it, is it possible that it's because it, in books and novels and on the, in the movies and in art, it's okay to, to... people talk about alcohol as a way to convey a message... Know, as a way to con- convey conviviality, a way la- that we're using the science and beers to convey our, our relaxedness or to convey the characters of a, of, a, of a female character in a book?
1: Definitely, yeah. I think that art and uh, films, TV, books can all play a role in creating and strengthening these, uh, these cultural associations we have with particular substances. And so what alcohol or any drug is is not just the physical effects it has on the body or on the mind, but also the series of associations that we have with it, the ideas that we have about it, and those are um, created through the culture that we um, experience. Like I was thinking when you were talking then about *Sex in the City* and the way that they kind of, or at least it seemed this way when I was younger, that, it's, that they kind of popularized cocktails and it made it seem like a sort of female fun. cosmopolitan. Yeah, specifically. exactly. Yeah, and that was that was how to be sort of. Um, yeah an independent woman doing her own thing drinking with her friends and the the drinking was an integral part of what the show was presenting as Mm -hmm. an aspirational lifestyle which isn't to say that it's you know necessarily a bad thing or a thing that we ought to um, stop doing but I think it's interesting to think about how our perspectives on alcohol as much as on um, other drugs are created in part through um, through these kind of representations
0: There was another book you were basing your, uh, your, your argument on there about uh, female characters and, and, uh, and alcohol. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, so that's a novel called um, So Happy It Hurts by Annalisa McIntosh, and that's a, um, a very recent novel... And a really interesting one in terms of the way that it's structured as a piece of art because um, it's about a main character who decides to stop drinking and the book is structured um, as... It's kind of a book in a book. It's structured as um, as if it were the notes and things that she writes into a book that she's stolen from the hospital that she works at, which is one of those... Um, kind of slightly cliched um, self-help books called The Little Book of Happy um, which has sort of little phrases in saying um, ways of being happy, it's a kind of advice giving book about happiness and she takes this book from the hospital she works at and she starts to write in the margins of this book and around the edges and she starts to stick stuff into the book and so the novel is presented as her notes on another book so it has a kind of interesting structure and in the way that it's structured it um is a way of suggesting a kind of um interaction with some of the self-helpy ideas that are out there about what it means to be happy so she includes them but she's also kind of writing around them and writing back to them and critiquing them and adding to them so um it has a a structure of, like a kind of conversation between her voice and the voice of this self-help narrative.
0: What would be your analysis then of, of the impact in that book for the reader?
1: So I think that it picks up something that's very recognisable in our culture. So those, um, those, those little books, they were very popular in airports. I don't know, they probably still are, like a few years ago, those books that kind of tell you, this is how to live a good life, and it's very short... Um, quotes from various famous people some of them spurious quotes and it takes something that we're familiar with that is um out there that we know about and it shows how um that can be used and thought about in a new way and in part i think um the novel is trying to critique or question some of the ideas we have around um around contemporary ideas about happiness about what it means to be happy and whether happiness is the goal of life and whether um giving up drinking for example is a way of uh, attaining happiness whether that is what happiness is or whether programs of self improvement in a broader sense are where we should be directing our energy and so the, the novel doesn't necessarily come to a conclusion but it shows how Um, narratives of self-improvement and the idea maybe the slightly banal generalization about um, you know we should all be pursuing the maximum amount of happiness at all all times it shows how um, that idea can be tested or pushed or um, discussed debated that doesn't necessarily need to be taken at face value it can be kind of questioned
0: i'm happy having a pint in the sun (laughs) but if i pursued that too much uh, So, so talking about that 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 those happiness books just made me think about so so we're influenced every day by the actual characters in our lives. Yeah. So talking to people, um hearing other people's stories, that that affects our view of reality and it affects our own behaviour. Yeah. It kinda of sets the rules for how we live. Yeah. Um, and, and that, that that can be I I'm talking about how how people treat people I'm talking about uh, left, right, liberal, conservative, uh, or, or sexist, racist views yeah. that, that can also also be promoted through the people that we meet. But the beautiful thing about books is that you know you can really get into a character. Not only can you get into a character, you can get into the minds of the character. Yeah. So you can really feel for whatever the author decided for that character is going to be, and you can warm to that person, or or you can be distracted from that person Uh, but essentially what a beautiful novel is an actual character so is is it possible that these fictitious characters can can have such influence on our own behaviour as a a real life person do you think
1: (laughs) Um, I maybe wouldn't measure it but I think that the um That there's definitely the possibility that reading and, as you say, the extent to which reading gives us the sense of knowing what it's like to be somebody else or seeing the world through somebody else's eyes can be profoundly influential. Um, It's funny you should mention this because I've been doing oral exams, as you know, and, and one of the issues we've been talking about is whether literature can help you to understand what it's like to be someone who's very different from you. Um, whether it can help you to kind of bridge the gap between your own experiences and experiences of other people. And um, there's a a philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who we've been reading in this class, and she talks about the fact that when we read, we have to exercise our imagination. We have to imagine what it would be like to be in certain situations that might be very remote from our own lives and experiences. And she says that by doing that, we can... um, we can come to have a better understanding of what life is like for for others. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. And there's also another philosopher that we've been talking about in this class, um, Derek Attridge, or he's a literary critic, and he talks about the way that when we read literature, one of the things that we ought to do is to to treat it, not try to... um, not try to make it so that we understand everything about it but then when we come to a piece of literature especially pieces of literature that are surprising or um, unusual or weird in the way that they're constructed or seem a bit alienating in the way that a lot of um, artistic experimental writing can be alienating or strange when we come to a text like that and um, We can respond to them by allowing them to be what they are to be confusing to be strange and be weird and if we allow them to be weird in that way then um, that's a way of practicing responding ethically to other people Um, because often when we meet others we might not have We might not know what they're going through, we might not be able to fully understand the experience of people who are very different from us, but if we can allow that difference without feeling threatened by it, then that can be a way of dealing ethically with other people, and he says that that we can practice that if we read.
0: Uh, you're, you're, work, you're, you're delving into f- feminism as well, yeah. aren't
1: you? Yeah, so one of the things on a practical level is that um, my colleague Ella Feggots and I set up a, um, a feminist network for um, academics in the humanities faculty at SDU, and um, the idea of that is to bring together people uh, working on feminist issues, um, both in research and also in teaching and try and connect researchers on those issues and provide support for each other and then also um, do readings on feminist issues and then um, think about strategies for uh, bringing about more equality in, in the places that we teach and research. So that's a kind of practical strategy. On a research level Um, I've been working a lot on um, writing that deals with feminist issues or literary writing that tries to represent issues that are relevant to um, feminist causes so I recently wrote a chapter um, for a new book called um, New Feminist Studies which is about how literature can articulate a feminist perspective on migration so I looked at um, a non-fiction text and uh, some prose poems and I talked about how they present migration and how they show that migration can be really dangerous and that particularly for women it can be um, the source of gender based violence especially for um, people migrating from poorer countries to richer ones experiencing dangerous migrations as we see um, recently in in the people coming to to Europe and how also, how literature shows those dangers and difficulties but how literature can also show how important mobility and um, flexibility and the movement of people is that it kind of defends the value and the importance of being able to move between locations and countries how it articulates this kind of complicated perspective on migration and how... um, how that is a, a feminist point because it's about breaking down the, um, the barriers or the boundaries that we often see between people, between certain groups, between certain countries and others. So um, there's a, a feminist um, writer called um, Chandra Mahanty and she talks about the fact that <coughs> feminism should be about trying to um, cross borders and to break down the borders that are both the physical borders between um, richer countries and poorer ones but also the the borders that um, separate men and women or the borders that separate certain groups of women from each other so trying to think about perspectives that are more fluid and open
0: I'm I'm reminded of a a player watched just on on just a a few days ago called uh, Small Island
1: yes wow yes.
0: the National Theatre was doing that
1: yes I haven't seen the performance but yeah
0: and, and it, it, it's based on a book yes um, but wow that was a good three hours female led about uh, emigration from, from Jamaica to England yes. just after the war and my god it, 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 it cr- crossed a few borders so I'll tell you yeah, yeah. it was a, the, one of the most powerful plays I've ever, I've ever saw oh
1: that's so, great yeah I'll have to watch the, the, the play version yeah, yeah.
0: Sounds and and if, and if if I believe that I genuinely believe the world would be a better place if everybody saw that yeah, way.
1: Definitely. I mean, I think that's so important right now in in Britain. With I, I signed a petition the other day about the um, the Windrush um, generation who are seeking compensation for the scandal in which um, many of them were threatened for. Uh, threatened with deportation, or were deported, or put in immigration centres, and only five percent have have received any conversation from the British government. And I think that there are still so many issues that stem in British society from that period of time, and so little acknowledgement of the contribution that immigrants have made to to Britain. That um, I think, yeah, I think that th- that artwork is so important in trying to um, trying to make visible what is often ignored.
0: Whatever you're talking about. The importance of art to to change minds, or at least influence minds. Um, and say, say it was a, a, a feminist book. The person who's going to buy that is most likely already going to agree with the points yeah. that are going to be raised in the book. And the person who's going to go to a, a play like like Small Island is probably going to be agreeing with with the themes that are that are talked about in that yes. book. So. So that, that that's a difficult one. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> you, yeah, you know, so, so people consume the art that supports their own views.
1: That yeah, I think probably it's human nature that we tend to gravitate towards those things that feel familiar to us. And so, if we agree with um, an issue, we're more likely to seek out art that that responds and reflects that. So um, I think that that's probably an issue of institutions like publishers and um, broadcasters, national broadcasters in um, trying to as much as possible push things that um, that can open up um, different perspectives so um, like the BBC or whatever whatever they put on TV that has a big audience so that can reach out and same with what is published what is put on uh, prize shortlists or what's in the front window of bookshops, that is important in terms of um, providing options that at least you know you might get somebody who just goes into a bookshop and says, "Oh, that looks okay. Like I'll pick that up." So if that if the choice is out there, I think that's really important. But I think it is a matter of um, of institutions supporting more diverse yeah. voices.
0: I, I personally am not aware at the moment of any kind of like popular novel or whatever that would be, say, pushing... I'm sure they exist, but, but say, pushing ideology that I personally would find unhelpful to society, such as uh, racist or anti-feminist narratives. Are are they out there? Are you aware of?
1: I think that there's um, a lot of... Harmful ideas that can be perpetuated by cliched ideas about masculinity or femininity, for James example. James Bond. James Bond is a good example. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And all the debate around, oh, James Bond could never be played by a black actor. I think that that whole um, debate shows a lot of unfortunate ideas that people have about race and about identity. That um, So it might not be. An example of straightforward racism, but there's still a lot of racism that's around the ideas of who is allowed to play this cultural icon. I think.
0: Yeah. There, there is talk about bringing in a female character to play. Yeah. Not James Bond, but. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> change the name. Janet, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> oh, here comes our drinks. Thank it's you. Fine. Here's our
1: drinks.
0: Thank you very much. Excellent.
1: Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, my colleague Peter and I edited this collection which is called uh, Precarity in Contemporary Literature and Culture.
0: Precarity, uh, so precarity is, uh, is, like, low economic status.
1: Yeah, or I guess it's the way that, especially today, it feels to some people that a sense of insecurity has become more prevalent across society. So if they used to be like we were talking about with secure work there used to be more of an expectation especially in for example the UK and the US there used to be more of an expectation that you could get a job and then you could stay in that job for the rest of your life and it would be fairly reliable and maybe maybe you wouldn't really love your job or find loads of self-fulfillment in it but it would be it would be there for you and you could make your regular wage whereas today there are lots of changes in the economy which seem to make it so that regular work is harder to come by and there's a sense of um, insecurity that is related partly to that but then also to broader social issues for example the threat of climate change which pre- creates this sense that you know maybe we're heading towards this disaster so precarity I would say is, a, is a, a word for a contemporary feeling of insecurity and vulnerability and not being sure about the future that some people say is heightened today.
0: Well I think it, it's only exacerbated by the fact that the virus came along and yes. just took, took the whole world out by its knees. Yeah exactly <laughs> you know.
1: yeah and that's such a good example of the way that You know, we like to pretend. I think it's probably a human thing to pretend that we are, um, you know, that we're in control to some extent of our lives. And I think that one of the things the virus has shown us is how quickly normality can be undermined. And there's, you know, we are vulnerable as a species. We're vulnerable to to so many things. And this has been a really clear example of that human vulnerability.
0: Uh, so, 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 you're looking at precarity combined with the use of alcohol in literature?
1: So my own stuff is about that, but then I also have this uh, book that's coming out with Bloomsbury um, that I co-edited with my colleague that's about um, the way that literature, but also culture and visual art and um, theatre and films represent precarity in general so we've got some really interesting chapters in that book about how for example um hollywood films um or uh performance art can show can kind of reflect on the experience of precarity there's an interesting chapter about um speculative fiction and how that might be a way of encouraging us to imagine more solidarity between different people who find themselves feeling precarious or uh, in unstable um, that's by Brian Yazell and um, I think it's, it's interesting to think about the way that different cultural forms or different types of culture can provide insight into insecurity and instability and help us to think about it in different ways
0: mm-hmm. So, so, are you saying that art is just nodding towards this uh, precarity in our existence, or do you see it as, uh, as having an influence on in how we perceive the situations that we're in?
1: Yeah, so I think that that um, would be one of the arguments, that we can see literature, of course, as reflecting that situation, but maybe also it can change the way we approach it. So... For example, it might help us to um, critique the situation that we're in. Or it might also help us to um, think differently about, for example, can we cope with um, insecurity? Like, if we find ourselves in a situation that is uncertain for us, sometimes that can provoke a, a sense of fear and anxiety. But could that also... Um, encourage us to be more empathetic towards others perhaps those who have always or because of their identities have always faced heightened insecurity so can literature change the way we think about the circumstances we face Um, the philosopher Judith Butler says that sometimes if we encounter our own vulnerability it might make us more able to think about the social structures that can help prevent or help um, Help to protect against vulnerability that's heightened too far. So help to put in place social security nets that can protect the most vulnerable. Obviously, when we experience our own vulnerability, it can make us not respond that way. It can make us angry and violent. But one of the things it might be able to do is make us pay more attention to the things that are necessary in society for people's lives to be protected more. Mm
0: -hmm. I'm, I'm reminded of uh, John Steinbeck's *The Grapes of Wrath*. Mm-hmm. I happened to read that just as the Syrian crisis was reaching yeah. a peak, and there was lots of uh, immigration to Europe, and there wasn't a lot of welcome, you know. And I'm reading that book that was uh, written 50 years ago, said 100 years ago, and I saw a lot of recurring themes in there, yeah. as if, yeah, you have a lot of lot of sympathy and empathy for for the Wait family. If you read that book, but that book clearly hasn't had a very well-read well and, and widespread book. Doesn't seem to have had that much of an impact in society, because look at the world today. So, yeah, book, books important, like, like books that are taught in schools can, can, can have very strong messages. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying books don't have the ability to change the world, no. but I'm saying that you know, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking to see that important messages that are conveyed through art aren't, aren't received and learned from.
1: Definitely, yeah. And I think that... Yeah, we have to be realistic and also think about the... It's not just a kind of linear process. It's often tempting to think that the future is always going to be an improvement, but actually we see all the time that there are lots of... Um, people and structures in society that have things to gain from oppressing migrants or from building walls or from um, encouraging division. So there's always gonna be a need to kind of keep articulating the points that um, are articulated for example by Steinbeck.
0: Yeah. So should we should we have everybody read the Grapes of Wrath or <laughs> <laughs> or just listen to the Bruce Springsteen song that yeah. <laughs> describes the same book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what are you reading at the moment?
1: I'm reading a book called Blonde by Joyce Carol Oates, um, which is a um, fictionalised book about fictionalised novel about Marilyn Monroe, and um, the writer used the. Um, the facts about Monroe's life, and used the documents that are available, the letters, etc., and has created this portrait of what it might have been like to be Marilyn Monroe from her childhood, and um, to her death. And from
0: her perspective, yeah. she's the she's the writer, she's or she's the, narrator. Yeah, the
1: narr- yeah, exactly, yeah. So it's from her perspective, and so we get um, an imagined idea of what it would be like to be in her mind and in her. I'm reading the part about her childhood right now, this kind of very um, vulnerable and difficult childhood, what that might have been like, how that shaped her personality. And I think it's a very interesting, imaginative exercise to try and work out what it might have been like to be her. It's really, um, yeah, really well done and compelling. Um, and it's interesting because Marilyn Monroe is obviously, Marilyn Monroe is obviously someone we we see from the outside you know what we know about her is her performance and her look and her charisma and so it's interesting to get a sense of how it might have been to be her or to feel like um, a sense of her thoughts or perspective it's a very interesting idea
0: Emily thanks very much for for uh talking to me in the welcome. science of years podcast cheers. Uh, cheers. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that podcast if you want to get in touch with with Emily or keep up to date with her research uh, you can find her Twitter tag in the description of this episode also please consider becoming a patron of this podcast so we can continue you can do that at patreon.com forward slash science and thanks for listening